Our scripture text for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3 as we read verses 8 through 13. You will notice, by the way, that I have included in the text Acts 6, verses 1 to 6. We're not going to read that, but I'm going to reference it enough in the sermon that I wanted to give it to you to look at. So it's there. Hear now the word of God. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let, may he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do that. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, as we dwell this morning upon the gift that deacons are to your church, would you help us to better understand the office of deacon? For those here who are already deacons, Lord, would you remind them of the high and important calling that they have? Would you, at the same time, be, put, be working in the hearts of your people, preparing future generations of servants in your church, laying the groundwork so that they are willing to bless and serve your people in due time? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I, I suspect that, in general, the office of deacon is little understood and not fully appreciated by many church members. Uh, I'm not saying the people of this church don't appreciate the deacons, but you may not know all that they do, and you may not understand their office. Um, however, one of the things that I've also discovered is that the longer I have served on sessions, the more I have come to truly believe that without a solid diaconate that serves the church well and loves the body of Christ, you would have a weaker, more distracted session and by extension, you would have a weaker church that doesn't understand well how to serve. Uh, in other words, deacons are not elders in training. Uh, that is an urban legend. Uh, sometimes it ends up being proven out, but on accident. Uh, <laughs> it's not by design. That's not the design of the diaconate. Um, deacons have their own unique giftings, their own unique abilities that make them deeply important to the life of the church on their own terms. The deacons and elders are, are a team together, complementing each other, each of them forming an integral part of what the church is and what the church does. If you're missing one, then you're going to be lacking in the other as well. Um, Paul brings us to this subject of the deacons this morning in verse 8, but he doesn't explain in much depth what deacons do or where the deacons come from. And so what I would like to do is touch on three things, some coming from this text some coming from other texts, especially Acts 6. That's why I've included it here, um, which, we, which is in the bulletin, it's because it gives us more information on the deacons. And if we're going to reflect on the deacons, let's do it with the full testimony of Scripture. And so those three things that I want us to reflect on this morning are first, the origin of the deacons, second, the office of the deacon, and then third, the qualifications of deacons. 
So those three things are what we'll be looking at. And first, we have the origin of the deacons. If you know the Old Testament well, then you know that Israel had a history of being held to the standard of caring for the poor, uh, loving the widow, and protecting the sojourner. This was part and parcel of of, uh, Israel's mission in the land. Why, though? Why did God tell them to do these things? Well, God had a historical and theological reason for it. It was because they had received grace from God. So his argument in Deuteronomy 15.15 is, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. So what does he do? He roots their response in the kindness that God has shown to them. God says, I've been kind to you. You had better be prepared to show kindness and mercy to others. Because I did this for you, show the same kindness to them. So when you come to the New Testament, then you don't suddenly see this shift where suddenly the church dismisses and doesn't care about the poor and doesn't care about the widow or the sojourner among them anymore. Instead, that continues. It continues as God's people contribute their goods to help other people. The church members see themselves as equals before God. And so when someone in the church is in need, they willingly give and they help them and they lift them up out of the despair that they find themselves in. And so you find that passage in Acts 2.44 that says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So the heart attitude that you see in the people of Israel and the people And when I say the people of Israel, I'm talking about God's people, the church. Uh, You see this willingness to share. You see this mutual love between these people who had been rescued and redeemed by Jesus, just like Israel had been rescued and redeemed by Jesus from Egypt. And yet that sharing and that care for one another comes with its own complications, doesn't it? It's not actually all that simple, especially if there are a lot of you to know how to care well for somebody. In fact, it can become a huge distraction, which is why the diaconate was created in the first place. And so we see the diaconate come into existence in Acts chapter 6. That's why I've included the text here. Now, I want to say something before we read it, which is this. The passage doesn't use the word deacon. If you are looking for the word deacon and you only believe deacons are being talked about, if the word deacon gets used, then you're going to look at Acts chapter 6, and you're going to say, well, the word deacon isn't here, so these must not be deacons. One of the things I'll point out is this. There's something called the word concept fallacy. The word concept fallacy basically teaches, if you want to summarize it, that you can have a word without the concept being taught, and you can also have a concept being taught without the word being there. The important thing is to look at the context of the passage in order to see whether the word is here. Now, uh, I do want to point out, though, that... uh, Well, let's just look at the text. I'm going to set the stage a little bit. By Acts chapter 6, there are a large number of disciples. You know, there has been an explosion of evangelism in, in, in Jerusalem. There are a lot of believers now, but there are a limited number of apostles. And the apostles, by this point, regard them as elders. Peter calls himself a fellow elder in his own letter, for example. And so let's read the situation in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, 
a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because of their widow, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I included verse 7 because I want you to see the results. I want you to hear the results of the creation of the diaconate. The, the result of the creation of the diaconate is not, therefore, everybody was satisfied. There's a bigger, greater, more important result. Many people come to faith. Many people learn obedience to Christ. Um, so this is worth keeping in mind. The situation in which the diaconate is created is one of necessity, and it's a situation of racial conflict. Um, church conflict is always a discouragement for pastors. It's a discouragement for elders, and the apostles were no different. Here they are, brand new infant church. You know, I think we sort of sometimes we romanticize the early church. We think, look at how peaceful it was. Think about how happy it was. Think about how glad-hearted everybody must have been. And then you read a passage like this, and you say, you know what? The early church had sinners in it too. The the early church had its own struggles. And so maybe we have different problems, but we, it's not like we don't have problems. Everybody, every church does. And so uh, for those who are sometimes distressed by conflict in the church, I think there's a strange encouragement. You know, you, you, it's not you don't want to see bad things happening in churches, but sometimes there's a weird kind of encouragement that you get from seeing that everybody else has the same problem. Uh, one of the things that I enjoy or at least experience when I talk to other parents is I just decide to open up about what a bad parent I think I am. And everybody that you talk to just goes, oh, thank God your family situation's just as bad as mine. And they feel so much better. It's like, you don't know what you're saying. Stop saying that. Uh, but it does. It feels better. It feels better to know you are not the only people on earth who have ever had struggles. And that's kind of the way it is when you read this passage about the early church. There's a strange encouragement here of knowing that the early church, the earliest Christians, had issues with racial bias. I mean, the races in question were not white and black. They were, they were actually two groups with far deeper divisions than white and black. This was Jew and Gentile. Uh, think about this. These are groups that were not just divided they didn't just dislike each other. Instead, for most of world history, they weren't even allowed to hang out together or have meals together. We're talking about thousands of years of tradition behind them. So you, you, one of the examples of this is, is Peter in Acts chapter 11. There, what's going on? Peter is sharing a meal with these Gentiles, and then the circumcision party arrives. And what does Peter do? He pulls back. He pulls back. Suddenly, he's afraid to hang out. Uh, and, and the circumcision party has such a problem because what was P Peter doing? He was, he was spending time with Cornelius and he was sharing a meal with him. And so you see that the divisions were deep and they were hard to get over. 
they were they were divided by dietary differences. They were divided by language differences. They were divided by cultural differences. Just you want to talk about two groups that had some major growing pains. You know, it doesn't get deeper than the division between Jew and Gentile in the early church. Um, these, these racial issues actually come up in Acts chapter 6, and they, they appear to actually be legitimate. They don't seem to be somebody imagining a problem or looking for something to complain about, right? Um, because see, notice what happens. The apostles don't say, no, this isn't a problem. They don't go to the Greeks and tell them, hey, get thicker skin. Uh, instead, they just say, look, there's racial tension in our church. We should face that. And the solution is that they appoint seven men to be deacons. And I want you to notice this. Every name, look at the names. I don't know if you can tell the difference between a Hebrew and a Greek name, but these are all Greek names. Very Greek names. <laughs> Every single guy in this list. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, Philip, Stephen. All of these are, are, are Greeks. So, so what are they doing? They, they basically respond to the unfair treatment of the Greeks by, uh, by giving them all of the power. They say, well, let's let you guys be the ones doing the distribution, right? Have the Hebrews been giving themselves preferential treatment? Then let's put the Greeks in charge. Like, let's show, let's show deference to these brothers. Let's show them that we love them. Let's, say, let's show them that they matter. Let's maybe even overcorrect. Right? You could imagine somebody saying, well, there should be equal numbers of Hebrews and Greeks. You could put them both in there. You could make it eight instead of seven. Seven right now, that's an, that's an, un, an uneven number. There's a tiebreaker in there, right? Um, but there's an implication here. And I think the, the, the implication is there is a solution to racial strife. And the, and the answer is a unified church under Christ where racial and cultural biases are recognized and faced down when they arrived so that we don't deny them if they're real. If, if they're really happening, then we should, we should face them, right? Nowhere are we told this is just a figment of the Greeks' imagination. It is a challenge to talk about racial issues in America because everybody seems to have got a line drawn, right? For some... If you think race is still an issue, then you must be suspect. Maybe you're woke, right? Or, or if you think America has turned a corner and they made progress on the issue of race, then people say you're ignoring these things. You're harboring secret prejudice. And so everybody on every side demands extreme responses instead of measured, I think, thoughtful responses. I think we should have none of the extremes. We should stop being suspicious within the church when people raise legitimate concerns, right? If I've sinned, then I want to be confronted. I need to be confronted. Um, instead of denying that there's a problem, let's take what's said, let's address it on its own terms, and let's ask a self-reflecting question, is it true? That seems to be what the apostles do here. They seem to take the accusation seriously. They seem to get self-reflective. Um, notice this, though. They don't just address a general feeling. It's not just a general vibe that they're trying to eliminate in the church. You know, uh, they, they, it's something specific. There's a specific accusation. The Greeks don't say, you know, you guys say all the right things and you say we're family, but we just kind of get the feeling like you don't mean it. We can't put our finger on it, but something's wrong. That's not what the Greeks do. Instead, they say, you are showing preferential treatment. It's objectively true that this Hebrew woman received more than this Greek woman over here. 
And they both have the same needs, the same situations, and they've been treated unequally. Um, it's not a vague accusation. It's a specific accusation. And because it's specific, it can actually be repented of and it can actually be responded to. There's something that you can actually see that can be done to improve it, right? Specific sins, this is partly how we need to deal with racial strife. Sins should be specifically identified and specifically repented of. And as Christians, we need to be willing to cross whatever partisan boundaries have been formed on these issues, right? We need to be willing to transgress the hard and fast lines around us that everybody seems to be drawing. Um, What do I mean? I mean that if the apostles search their own hearts, if they search the hearts of the church members to say, is there some unjust way in me? Do Do I show preferential treatment to one racial group instead of another? If the apostles are willing to ask that question, then we should too. But it also probably means rejecting overreactions and it means rejecting false dichotomies that happen on both extremes. See, the racial issues need to be addressed, but you notice what happens for the church leaders. The the problems give rise to this massive distraction, right? For the elders, suddenly they are very much becoming specialists in this issue and that is going to send them off course. And so that suddenly means we need someone who can take care of the mercy ministries of the church because we're never going to get back to what we should be doing as elders if we don't address this. And so what do they do? In Acts chapter 6, they, 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 they have this problem before them. We need to be praying. We need to be sharing the word. And instead, what are we doing? We're serving tables. We're getting hands-on with the distribution of food. We're taking care of needs. And they're being pushed as elders in a way that they feel the pressure to give up preaching the word of God. (coughs) Then the elders say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the elders have this need, right? We need to pray. We need to minister the word. But to do that effectively, they need someone else who's qualified to serve God's people in this way that they can't do while also spiritually caring for the people, caring for the congregation. Excuse me. (coughs) Whoever they're picking is doing more than just serving tables. Um, I want you to notice this allows them to keep ministering the word, not just preaching right here this one time. (coughs) Uh, Sweetheart, I did not bring a drink, and I need one. Thanks. <laughs> Speaking of serving. Thank you, honey. <clears throat> but, but notice this. Whoever they're picking is not just serving tables. Um, the, the, what's happening is it's allowing them to keep ministering the word, right? They're not just, just one time going, well, we, we just want to make sure we're able to preach this one time. That's not what the complaint is. The complaint is we need to create an ongoing office that will allow us to serve as God calls elders to think. Um, it's a great time to prank someone put vinegar in their cup it's hilarious she didn't do that Um, notice notice what happens here I'm really trying to belabor this that this is not just a one time act of service these people are intended to do this is an office that's going to keep continuing so the elders can continue This is not a one-time thing. Notice the qualifications they mentioned for these men. It says they should be men. It says they should have a good reputation. 
They should be spiritual. In, in other words, they need to be mature Christian men, not just anybody. It's not just anybody in the church. Um, the, and the, the text says they should be wise, right? These are more than waiters in a church-owned restaurant. Who on earth gives an exam like this for someone to serve tables? That is not all that's happening here. Now, the elders weren't rejecting serving others, but they were saying that their time needs to be spent on the main things that God has given them to do, right? They need to be spending their time preparing, preaching the word, and praying according to verse 4. See, evidently the work of serving the tables and making sure people were cared for was important, but it did derail them from what they needed to be focusing on and what they needed to be doing. And as the church grew, they knew these important responsibilities would become a greater and greater distraction from their calling. And one of the things that I notice as I'm thinking about this text is I'm thinking about myself because I'm appreciating that even the apostles were men who couldn't do everything. I imagine them as people who could do everything. I imagine them zipping around the world, uh, world travelers, going from place to place, just touching people and making elders and then running to another place and making elders. And the church is just vibrant and healthy. And that's not the right way to imagine the work of these men. Because here's what happened. They knew what they were good at and they knew what they were called to. And they also knew a distraction when they saw it. And, and, and Jesus, what does he do? Through the apostles, he organizes the church in such a way that the elders of the church weren't distracted from what was their primary calling. Um, I appreciate the fact that this situation recognizes they had time limitations. They couldn't be in all places. They still had so many hours in the day in which to accomplish those things. They had to get a full night's sleep if they wanted to serve well. They were mortal men. They were normal people. Um, they had normal lives. They had normal families. Peter had a wife. And so the elders are saying, we need to preach. Preaching takes time. Preparing takes time. Prayer takes time. If we keep this up, the things that we need to be doing will be sucked up into this black hole of work that never really ends if we're honest with ourselves. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. So this is an ongoing need for the church. It's not a problem to be dealt with and solved like that. So I think Acts 6 does something. It gives us the background we need. Where did the diaconate come from? Even though it's rooted in Israel's history of caring for the poor and the widow and the sojourner, ultimately it arose because the church as Israel still had the poor among them and still had widows among them, and still had sojourners among them. And so they needed the church to do that work. Why? Because the church is God's chosen people. That's the origin of the diaconate. Israel continues on, and Israel needs to continue to love the poor, the widow, the sojourner. And so God creates this office. Now, <clears throat> now second, we come to the office of deacon. What do deacons actually do? Um. Let me share with you an excellent summary of the work of, of deacons. It comes from our denomination's book of church order. Uh, I just want you to listen to how much is compressed here. They do such a great job in such a small space of time just saying so many things. It says this, It is the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church, to devise effective methods of collecting the gifts of the people and to distribute these gifts among the objects to which they are contributed. 
They shall have the care of the property of the congregation, both real and personal, and shall keep in proper repair the church edifice and other buildings belonging to the congregation. Um, If you ask our deacons who are currently serving and those who have served as deacons, they will tell you it feels like they do everything. I, I, I think so. I look at the minutes of our deacons and I read them and I think it's just remarkable. They keep a list of, of people in the church who need special attention. They check on them every month. They report back to the other deacons. They keep up maintenance on our property. They manage the church building. They keep track of the finances of the church. They make sure that these things are straight. Uh, by the way, running a church is complicated. Running a church takes a great deal of work. You... Uh, you may learn this about me after a while, but I don't always know everything that's going on around here. <clears throat> I'm the, sometimes I'm the last person to know a lot of things. Um, some of you might even think, man, uh, Pastor Adam's like an absent-minded professor. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes they'll say, Pastor, when is this or this meeting going on? And I say, I, I actually don't know. My answer is often, uh. <laughs> because... We have gifted people who do very well at caring for those aspects of the church that I don't have to devote too much of my limited brain space to it. And it is limited. Like, I look like I have a normal head, but it's actually all skull. Um, the, the deacons and elders and Matthew and Terry are actually far better stewards of many of the things happening around here than I am. Um, <clears throat> Part of having a group of elders who are gifted and who love the church and part of, part of having a group of deacons who are engaged and love the church and fulfilling their call as in their office is that I, as the pastor, am often not at the vanguard of the activities of the church. I have a specific focus that I'm able to have in my life. I'm able to focus on preaching. Uh, I'm able to focus on hopefully de- developing the elders or working with the elders. I don't know if they'd call it developing. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, I can focus on calling upon people when I hear about special needs or hardships. It means I can participate in presbytery. Uh, I can focus on writing projects. I can focus on praying for the church. And, and I'm grateful that I don't have to do everything around here. That would just be so difficult. And so here's what I would say. If you've been blessed by the preaching of the word that, that I do, credit that not only to the grace of God and to his Holy Spirit, but also to the labor of every officer in this church, because what they're doing is they're lifting off things that very easily could fall upon me. Um, And the deacons are lifting things off of the elders that very easily could and would fall upon the elders if we didn't have deacons. And so, so in this way, what happens is the deacons are helping meet the spiritual needs of the church. Even as they're getting together and they're talking about the building and they're talking about having a church work day or they're talking about how to pay off certain loans or deal with property stuff, it doesn't sound very spiritual. And yet they are spiritually blessing this church by doing that because they are helping those who serve in other areas to do what they do. In fact, I pointed this out already. You look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7. You see the results of the appointment of the deacons. It says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Why? Because there are men now to serve. And now the elders can elder, and the deacons can deek. Um, Creating a new verb. You know, this office is created by God. God is so wise. God is, I know that's a self-evident truth, but we still have to say it. 
God is wise. God planned for deacons. God cared for somebody to handle the property and, and acts of mercy and ministering directly to hurting people. And by doing that, God is enabling the elders to be elders and be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. I, I thank God that in our session meetings, we get together and we are not constantly occupying ourselves with the building and with financial stuff. Sometimes we'll find ourselves doing it. And usually some wise elder by the end of the discussion will say, this was the deacon's work. We did the deacon's work this week, you know, <laughs> and then we kind of hang our heads and send it to them and say, sorry, we did your work. Um, Without the deacons, the elders would be distracted from their calling. We'd be taken up with something that's not our calling. And the, the deacons allow the church to have elders serving as elders. Uh, I have a good friend who's a pastor in a church that currently has no deacons. And his ministry is difficult. Because the session of the, of the church, what are they doing? They're getting together and they're dealing with all the things that normally would belong to deacons. And until God raises up deacons in his church, the session has to meet more frequently often to deal with the issues of the church, like property and upkeep. Without deacon, that work falls on the session, just like we see here in Acts chapter 6. The office of deacon is a blessing to the church. I hope you see that. <clears throat> now, third, we have the qualifications of deacon. Uh, before, we, before we talk about this text, you can find a lot of qualifications for the deacon in Acts 6. Not even just here in 1 Timothy, but in Acts 6 and in our passage. So first, let me, just, let me just go through some of the qualifications. First, it says they need to be a church member. The apostles say, pick out from among you. From among you. It doesn't say, go out in the highways and byways and find people who, they're not committed to the church necessarily, but they, they're, they're, they're really good at serving tables. It's not what, not what they do. Instead, it says, pick out from among you. The idea is they must be among us. That is to say, they need to be people who, I think in our own day, we would call them church members. People who are known to be among us. And this makes sense, right? There's no sense in having a deacon who isn't a member of the church. It's kind of a strange idea. Um, continuing on the same sentence, we see the second feature of a deacon. It says, pick out from among you seven men. Um, full stop. The office of the deacon is an office that is to be held by men. That's what they're looking for here. Paul sets the same qualification in our passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. It says that they should be a husband, um, not a wife. It says they should be a husband. Um, just like with our, our talk about the elders last week, this is a kind of man. right? It's a, it's a one-woman man. This is a command, not that they must be married, but that they should be this kind of man. They should be a chaste man whether they're married or not. <clears throat> and also, we talked about this last week, but women do have important roles in the church. They do extraordinary things in the church. In fact, I don't think it's bluster to say that the women of the church really are the, the lifeblood, the heartbeat of the church. But the office of deacon involves a laying on of hands. It involves ordination. It is not an office of instruction or rule, but it is an officer that, office that commands authority in the church. And the, the purpose of the diaconate is in part to lead the congregation in developing generosity, teaching people how to give, teaching people uh, how to care for one another. And so because of that, I know it's unpopular even in our own denomination to say this, but the scripture instructs us that the deacons must be men. Now, some people throw a wrench in at this point. They say, look in Romans 16. There's a woman in Romans 16, and some translations say that Phoebe is a deaconess. Um, if you look at the word that gets applied to Phoebe there, the Greek word is servant. She served the church. 
Paul gave her honor. He gave her recognition for her service. You know, before I used, I used the word concept fallacy, or I mentioned the word concept fallacy, and I said, if you look in Acts 6, you're not going to find the word deacon, but you're going to find the concept of the deacon. And just like the word isn't used, that if the word isn't used, then it doesn't mean the concept isn't there. That also is actually true from the other direction as well. Just because the word is used doesn't mean that the same concept from somewhere else is necessarily being used there. Let me be a little clearer on what I mean by that. Not every time the word deacon is used in the text does it necessarily refer to a church officer. I think Phoebe is an example of that exact principle. I think Paul is saying that Phoebe is a servant of the church, but it's questionable, and that's putting it generously, whether she's actually an officer of the church. One can be a servant of the church without being an officer of the church. Um, if you look, the word deacon just means servant. It doesn't always refer to the church office of deacon. I'll give you two examples of that. Uh, Romans 13.4. If you look at Romans 13.4, you have the civil magistrate being talked about. That's the passage that says Caesar doesn't wield the sword in vain. And what does the passage say? It says that Caesar is a deacon. If you're reading the Greek and you read the text, it says that Caesar is a deacon. Now, I don't want us to do such a reading of the New Testament that whenever anybody has the word deacon applied to them, that they become a church officer because I think Caesar would be a crummy church officer. And I don't think that's controversial. Um, you have another verse. You have uh, Romans 15.8. It says that Christ became a deacon to the circumcised. Now, actually, I have no objection to Jesus serving the church or Jesus being a deacon in the church. But I think that you can see from these two examples that these passages are not saying that either of these individuals hold a church-ordained office of deacon. In neither of these cases does the term deacon mean church officer. Instead, it just means servant. Sometimes it refers to an officer, but not always. Um, if you read deacon to always mean church officer, you create, a ma you create major confusion. The, the civil magistrate becomes a church officer. Uh, Jesus himself would be a deacon in the church. So it's not the word deacon alone that settles the question. Instead, it is the context that determines whether deacon means servant or whether it means the church office of deacon. I think Phoebe served the church. She clearly served the church because Paul decided to honor her for her service. He decided to recognize her publicly in Romans 16. But it is a lengthy stretch to say that this therefore means she was a, an ordained church officer, especially if you have such clear teaching in Acts 6 and in 1 Timothy 3. Generally in scripture, the principle is that the clearer texts interpret the less clear texts. And I think that 1 Timothy 3 and Acts 6 are very clear. And Acts 16, is there's nothing definitive there whatsoever. So a deacon should be a man. The next qualification is this. A deacon is to be a man of good repute, according to Acts 6. Um, that is to say, a deacon must be someone who has a good reputation and someone who is well regarded, right? The way you gain that reputation is by living a virtuous life. Um, Paul says it like this. He says they must be dignified, not double-tongued, right? That is to say, this is supposed to be somebody who's plain-spoken, not a politician type. They should have a reputation for being straightforward, for being honest. He says they shouldn't be addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. The picture that forms here is of a person who's self-controlled, that's not governed by his appetites. 
Um, especially in a position of service, right, where the, the resources of others are in somebody's control. It can be a temptation to misuse what's been committed to you. Uh, a person who's a drunkard, a person who's greedy, is someone who's vulnerable in his service as a deacon. Um, Paul says it's really important that that not be the case. This is what he decides to focus on when he talks about the qualifications. He should be somebody who's of good repute. Um, Another qualification is in verse 3 of Acts 6. They say that this man must be full of the Spirit. This this phrase reflects somebody who is daily living under the dominion of Christ rather than the dominion of the flesh. This is somebody who um, all Christians are, this is something that all Christians are called to. This is, again, not super spirituality. I pointed this out with the elders, certainly the case with the deacons as well. This is not an office for the person who is super spiritual. But they have to be living a Christian life that reflects God's own desires and God's own standards for Christians. All church officers are meant to be model Christians. Um, Paul puts it this way in our passage. He says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Um, And then he, he expresses the spirituality of the deacon in another way. He says, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober minded, faithful in all things. You know, if you're reading the passage, you're getting, you're moving along, you're saying, why does Paul suddenly care about the wives of the deacons? I think what Paul is doing is he's expressing a a simple principle that uh, applies to all church officers, including elders and deacons. The way that our own wives walk with the Lord is an expression of how we really care for our families. Like if my wife had brought me vinegar up here, that would have reflected on me, right? (laughs) It would have been hilarious. It would have reflected on me. Um, you know, you all may find yourselves wondering. You know, I Adam. I know Adam is like this on Sundays. Is he the real deal? Does he really talk and live this way? And how do you know? And part of the answer, I think, from Paul is, look at our families. Look at our look at our wives. They display for you in a way that can't be premeditated. The sort of cultivation that's happening in the home. Which, which makes you nervous because, because I know that I have little sinners in my house and I know that my wife and I are sinners and if you look very closely, you will see all the flaws and all of the cracks and all of the problems. But yet Paul says that the wives should be godly wives. They should be dignified. Um, the sort of spirituality that's cultivated in our homes when you all aren't looking, when you all aren't around. I think this is another way of saying what Paul said in last week's passage. An elder must manage his own household well. And I think he's saying a deacon must manage his own household well. He must have a wife who's dignified if if he's married and doesn't go around talking about other people who's faithful in walking with Jesus and being a part of Christ's church. And he'll have children living under his roof who submit to their father. These These are typical church officer qualifications. Another qualification that's mentioned in Acts 6 is that they have wisdom. Uh, when I was very young, I was like a brand new Christian, and I read J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And his definition of wisdom will always be my definition. Even if somebody comes out with a better one, I'll still like J.I. Packer's better. Um, but he says wisdom is more than just knowledge. It is having the discipline to, and the care to actually put the things you know into action. It's knowing what's good and then being able to do it. And being a deacon involves making important decisions about church property, about people's lives, about finances, about problem solving. And the reason wisdom is called for is because there is not always a Bible verse to help with every single problem that a deacon has to deal with. 
with the elders, most of the stuff we do is ministerial and declarative, and we need to make sure that what we say and what we do is actually anchored in the Word of God. And that's not the opposite with deacons, but oftentimes they're making decisions about things that Scripture doesn't necessarily speak to. And so what do the, the apostles say? They say, pick, some, pick from among you men who are wise. I remember years ago having a, a widow come to me and she said, Pastor, I have $1,000 a month to live on. How can I live on $1,000 a month? And we had a deacon who was very gifted in managing slender finances. And he came and he sat down with she and I together. And he worked on a budget for her that she could live with, something that she could live on. But you know what? That took wisdom. That took wisdom to do that. Living on $1,000 a month, not easy. Um, Deacons need to be wise. The the church is not served well by having deacons who are not wise. (laughs) That's the third thing that's mentioned this morning, the qualifications of deacons. So we've seen the origin, we've seen the office, we've seen the qualifications. A couple of points I want to mention here as we conclude. The first is this, consider whether you might be called to this task. Um, I don't know if you've considered that you might be called to be a deacon before, but you've listened to the qualifications. Um, if you're qualified and others in the church recognize that you're qualified, maybe it's time to consider that the Lord could have been preparing you and preparing your own soul so that you could serve in this office. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to mention is this. Pray that God would raise up deacons in his church. Uh, I think we have wonderful deacons. These are, there are other churches who badly need deacons. Uh, We should pray for God to raise up deacons as servants, as a model of service, as an expression of God's love for his people, both in this church and in other churches. So we should be praying more broadly for other churches that need church officers. That's something I neglect to do. I might pray for the gospel to spread, for God to bless the elders in, in a church, but I might forget to actually pray, God, be raising up new elders and new deacons in these churches. That's something I neglect to pray for. I don't always think about it. We should do that. Third, please thank our deacons. We have amazing deacons uh, who serve this church well, and they don't do it for the thanks. But if you've ever come to the deacons with concerns or with needs, I think you would probably testify that these men are excellent models of service and care for our church. Uh, Please thank them. Uh, And also thank God for raising them up and for equipping them and for continuing to do that. Uh, I want to conclude by reminding all of us that we are never called to do anything that Jesus himself has not done for us already. Jesus Christ served. You remember how he said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus Christ served. Uh, You remember that moment uh, where he washed the disciples' feet. And you remember what he said after he washed their feet. He didn't say, I'm instituting a new sacrament or something like that. He said this. He says, do you understand what I've done to you? If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So, so he's not saying every church service, get out the basins, get out the rags, and everybody wash each other's feet. He's not instituting a literal thing. Instead, he's, he's setting himself as an example of servanthood and self-sacrifice for us to follow. See, Jesus Christ served, and he poured himself out for his people when, when by all rights, he ought to have abandoned us or he ought to have demanded us serve him. He had to have gone his own way. He had to have left us to the judgment of God. And instead, he poured out his life. He died on our behalf. He faced the punishment that we deserved, uh, redeemed and, and rescued us when he owed us nothing. 
And so what I want you to know, Evergreen, is that service is in the DNA of the church from top to bottom, from head to toe. We serve one another because we have a Redeemer who has already done precisely that for each of us. Let's pray. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you came and bled and died so that your people could have their needs met. Our need was for a Savior. And you came and and you served and you died so that we could have exactly that. Lord, we ask that you would raise up deacons for our church. We ask that you would continue to bless our church body with qualified men, with the heart of a servant who want to see the body of Christ cared for. We thank you for so many in this church who serve each and every week, often in ways that none of us see, but you see, Lord. And so we thank you that so many in your church are willing to work, not for acclaim, not for praise, not for notice, but simply to know that your people are being fed and taught and helped. Continue, O God, to bless this church with men and women, with servant-like hearts. But we ask you especially to give your church here and all around qualified men who will answer your call to serve in this very office, which you, through your apostles, instituted for the good of your people. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.